You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm your guest host, Christina Lopez, a clinical social worker and information specialist with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's Information Resource Center. Thank you for joining us on this special live episode being recorded at the Florida Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Disparities in Cancer Care Summit in Hollywood, Florida. I am delighted to be joined by two of my co-presenters from our panel session at the conference, Addressing Barriers and Disparities for Hispanic and Latinx Blood Cancer Survivors Throughout the Care Journey, Dr. Jacqueline Barrientos and Laura Ortiz-Ravik. Dr. Barrientos is a hematologist-oncologist at Mount Sinai Medical Center, where she is Chief of Hematologic Malignancies and Director of Oncology Research. She is also Adjunct Professor of Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York. Laura Ortiz-Ravik is the Director for Outreach and Health Promotions at LLS, where she oversees national outreach programs that support underserved populations, including Myeloma Link, a program that raises awareness of the higher incidence of myeloma among Black Americans, enhancing access to care, and connects families to support. She also oversees LLS's Hispanic Outreach Initiative, which seeks to increase the number of Hispanic families served by LLS by providing culturally and linguistically appropriate education, programs, and resources. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Barrientos and Laura. Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Dr. Barrientos. Same here. I'm delighted to be here and to be able to have a chat with you. So now we know that there are many considerations when we talk about health disparities, including race, language, and geography. So for our conversation today, we want to focus on Hispanic and Latinx population. So let's start with a question for both of you. What are the barriers that the Hispanic Latinx community face in accessing optimal care and evidence-based information about cancer diagnosis and treatment options? So one of the main issues in our communities is the language barrier. Unfortunately, even though we are a sizable part of the population, there are not that many doctors that can speak the language to the patients and explain how important it is for them to monitor their disease and to understand why we need certain therapies. In my practice, and I've witnessed it when other colleagues have tried to reach out to patients. Sometimes they are afraid of the therapies because they don't understand why it is important. There's a concern of maybe this is not the therapy for me. Why don't you just let me 
go. I had a great time in my life. Once you sit down with them in their own language, it's easier for them to understand that most of the time, these are treatable diseases that we can give them quality of life. And maybe in many of the cases, we can give them the same amount of life as each match cohorts that do not have the disease. If they have access to the right therapies and they are aware of the potential side effects of the drugs that we are giving them. Thank you, Dr. Valentos. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there are a range of barriers that are both systemic and structural and limitations with the language, and it's one of the main barriers. And with that also comes low health literacy and really the challenges in having a healthy and productive relationship and communication with your health provider. And I also think that unresolved immigration status from some of our members in our community really limits their ability to access care, but also access insurance, health coverage, and those things that are critical to be able to access optimal treatment. And As we know, Zipco has the dual role of being both a determinant of health and, and a barrier to accessing care. And that to me is it's unthinkable, right? It's like the fact that you have cancer, but yet where you live might influence the quality of the care that you're able to access or for. It's it's really terrible. It impacts our community tremendously and also trust, right? Lack of trust in the healthcare system plays a critical role, only exacerbated by the historical injustices that the system has committed against ethnic and racial groups, including uh, Latinx communities. Yeah, absolutely. We both touched upon so many critical issues. And when we look at, you know, with health literacy, we know that medical language is really a language in and of itself. So making sure patients and their caregivers, a caregiver is such a critical part of this puzzle that they understand this different language, this medical language in their native language. Dr. Barrientos, how do you help patients who have access issues to optimize their care. And we know some of these access issues, Laura, thank you so much for bringing up some of these barriers. We look at distance, cost of care. What are strategies that you use to collaborate with other physicians and members of the treatment team to help coordinate this care? So we rely a lot on our physician navigators and our nurses and our team We are all a team, including our pharmacists, to help us sometimes not only inform the patients on the important medication compliance and also help with the system resources. Like, for example, at our center, we have a program where if you live within 20 miles, they will provide some free transportation for you so that you can get access to your medical care. On a personal note, we in the lymphoma leukemia group, both in New York and in Florida, have been able to have very strong collaborations with other groups. So if for any reason our institution does not take one medical insurance, I can call a friend or a colleague at another institution and say, hey, can you see this patient tomorrow or the next day? And that is important too. Continuity of care is very, very important I've had many times in the hospital seen patients admitted through the ER for a medical emergency. And if for any reason we cannot provide the service, we can make the appropriate referrals. 
So it's important to establish collaborations, not only within your institution, but also outside of your institution to help our patients. Because, for example, a patient from Hialeah, it's still in Miami, but it might be very, very hard for them to cross all the way to Miami Beach. And so if I am able to get some form of coverage or help for them to get access locally, we try to do that. And we do have an office over there. But there are some patients that their insurance is not covered there. So we try to find somebody that can help them locally. But again, the role of the patient educators, patient navigators, the nurses, the pharmacists, that all is important as well, because it's not only the patient's disease, it's also how well they are compliant with the drug, how much they understand the importance of letting us know when there's a new potential toxicity. For example, there are data that Children with acute leukemia that are Hispanic, they actually have a worse mortality, even though they have the same response rate. And it's only because their parents or caregivers do not understand the importance of heading to the closest ER if they spike a fever to 101 or higher. And that's very sad because this is something that is preventable. We have amazing drugs to protect the children from a bad outcome, but If you don't get that message across, you will have outcomes that are based on the social determinants of health. Inability to understand how important it is for you to monitor as a caregiver. So it's a lot of things that it's not only a one person effort. I think we also have a lot of industry help. I've had patients that their insurances didn't cover their targeted drugs and have gone above and beyond just trying to get the industry to sponsor some form of help for the patients to get their drugs that are optimal instead of giving them all drugs that may be covered by the insurance that is subpar. Knowledge is power, absolutely, and helping people that may have limited or no English proficiency to understand what rights they have, what access they have in their healthcare system is really critical. And it really takes a village, right? And that's kind of what you're talking about too, not just engaging within the healthcare system, but also within the community. So Laura, this question is for you. How would you define community engagement in cancer care? And tell us a little bit about how this is an important concept when reaching patients from underserved populations. Thank you, Christina, for that question, because I think the concept of community engagement is often misunderstood, and it can be a very abstract concept to really have a full understanding of it. And a community engagement is pretty simple. It's really integrating yourself into the community and integrating the community into what you do in your practice and really understanding the needs of the community, understanding what matters to them, understanding what are their own definitions of healthcare and understanding from a cultural standpoint, what is it that is important to them in order to move forward with taking care of themselves. And community engagement is critical in the work that we do because we need to include the voice of the patient and the voice of the community in our decisions as clinicians, as patient advocacy organizations, because in our case at LLS, we take into account the patient's voice to really develop and inform our outreach strategy to ensure that we are touching upon those areas in partnering with those community allies that are the trusted messengers and are the, the people who are going to really 
open the doors for us. So community engagement is critical because it, it helps build trust in, in the healthcare system. Like I said before, trust has been eroded because of many different reasons, some of which are very much caused by the healthcare system and, and the uh, atrocities, frankly, that they have done in the past against some of these communities. So including that the patient and the community voice is critical to really rebuild that trust, that credibility in the work that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And what we see is a lot of these community organizations are often created or started by people who have gone through this. And so there's such a connect to purpose with that. And it helps to really fill in a lot of the gaps that we see in healthcare and access and what creates these disparities. How do you eliminate that barrier to access? So Dr. Barrientos, moving on a little bit from the language piece, let's talk a little bit about clinical trials. We know that the Latinx population is severely underrepresented in clinical trials. So how do you start this conversation with your patients and with their families? So it is two ways, not only on the part of the patient, but also on the part of the industry. And being an investigator for over a decade, I have lobbied for inclusion for some of the comorbidities that may not make you a perfect candidate. For example, if your creatinine level is a certain range, which happens to be higher for some patients, they might say you're not eligible. Or if you have HIV, you're not eligible. And very recently, Medical Science Liaison for a company, for a protocol that I am working on, she said, we changed the protocol based on your feedback, and we're going to allow patients with HIV to participate. And coming from a community in Miami where many of my patients develop lymphomas because they have the HIV as a driver, it's very important for me to be a voice for these patients that otherwise would not be able to participate in these trials. Now, from the patient's perspective, you never jump at it. And that's the problem. There's a lot of distrust from the medical community because they feel not well understood and they don't want to be a number. So I first establish trust and that takes time. And it's only once they trust me that I start to discuss this is the standard of care, but there is a chance that this new drug may be able to give you a better response with less toxicity. Would you be interested? I always let them make their own decisions. I never force onto them and I take my time. And I know that in many centers, the consenting process is done by a different team or the research coordinator or the nurse practitioner. I feel that it's very strongly for the patients to hear it from their own doctors that they believe in this drug or they believe that this will be a better regimen for them. And it's only when they trust you that they will start to open their eyes and ears to what you have to say. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's like what Laura was saying about community engagement. It's not only showing up in church to be with them, it's also listening to them. It's very important to understand their fears, understand why they might not be willing to participate in the trial, and eventually share with them what you have seen. And in our community, something that I have seen that is really amazing 
His patients are willing to talk about their own results to other patients. So we are a community. So I've had sometimes told some of my patients, hey, would you mind talking about your experience to this new patient that just got the diagnosis? And they're willing to share their experience because they went through it and they feel that this is a way to pay it forward. We are a community. Somebody was saying earlier during this meeting, it's the caregiver. It's not only one. It can be many in our community. It can be the tia or the titi, you know, or, or the cousin or the brother. We are an extended community. And I think as long as you can, in a way, explain that not only to the patient, but also to the family members and get them involved, that goes a long way. I've had a patient that she never answered to my phone calls, never showed up to clinic. And one day I decided to call her sister and her sister made her come and now she's in remission and she's doing great. And a year later, I asked her, you know, um, I have a patient that is not listening to me. He has lymphoma. He has HIV. I think he would benefit from this. And she reminded me, she said, do you remember when you called my sister? Do the same for this patient. You'll see how long that goes. And I did. And, and he started coming. And to them, it meant that I had a personal interest in getting them to get their life better. And so I think once they see that, it's easier to start the discussion about participation in clinical trials because they understand that you're not doing it for being a number or to have your name on a paper. You're doing it because you are really vested in their optimal health and outcomes. Wow. I mean, that's just so incredible. And thank you, Dr. Barrientos, for the work that you're doing to break down these barriers and create more inclusivity with some of these protocols. Trust does take time. And building that rapport is so critical. So, Laura, let's talk a little bit about community stakeholders. So who are the key community stakeholders that providers and health systems should be engaging Absolutely, Christina. And before I answer your question, I have to comment on what Dr. Variento said. And it's so true. We really have to show that we care, right? And that I think it's the first step in the relationship between the provider and the patient and the family and also between patient organizations that are out there trying to serve and support these patients. We have to show up and we have to demonstrate that we truly care and that we are here to serve them. And our relationship with our patients cannot be transactional. It cannot be a checkbox. It has to be truly a personal relationship in order to build a relationship that is going to save this patient's life and it's going to make a difference in the life. And, and going back to your question, Christina, it really depends on the community. And the key is to find those social and cultural anchors that serve as trusted messengers in that specific community. In the case, particular of the Latinx and Hispanic communities, we have done a lot of work at LLS with Promotores de Salud and Spanish-speaking community health workers uh, who truly are unsung heroes in this process and have not only the knowledge, but the passion and the dedication to serve their communities and to be the liaison and the bridges between the healthcare system and those communities, especially those segments of the community, of, of the Hispanic and Latinx communities that are often left behind, the immigrant communities, and especially those with unresolved 
solve immigration status. Promotores and, and community health workers have been instrumental in the work that we do in allowing LLS and I'm sure other patient advocacy organizations that are partnering with them to really develop a relationship with these patients and, and these communities. The churches are another huge stakeholder, but they're more than stakeholders. They're truly partners in this process. So it really depends on the community, but in the case of the Latinx community and the Hispanic community, uh, promotores de salud and, and, and community health workers have proven truly critical in our process. Absolutely. Creating those bridges are so critical We want to end on one more question for both of you today. We're really scratching the surface here, right? Are there any other challenges or strategies that you would like to bring to the conversation today when working with the Latinx community? Personally, I do believe that part of the problem is that if you don't see yourself represented in the clinical trials as a Latinx or Hispanic you don't really know if this drug is going to work for you, right? So because the data are mostly done in a different population, it might not work for you. It is very, very important to all of us as a community, as human beings, to try to advance the knowledge and participation of underrepresented communities. From my perspective, I try to encourage even students that are like in undergrad or high schoolers to participate in programs where they can open up their eyes and look into STEM sciences professions where they can be the research coordinator that is able to do the translation or discuss these things with the patient, or they can become the nurse practitioner or the nurse that takes care of the patient, or they can become doctors and the doctors stay in academia and pay it forward. One of my daughter's friends, she I grew up going to doctors, serving as a translator as a 10-year-old kid for her parents because her parents were undocumented and did not speak the language. And that prompted her to want to go to medical school and, and change this for them. So there's a lot of us, you know, there's a new generation, I think, engaging them when they are young as high schoolers and reinforcing them that they can do it. So that's why I kind of like stay in academia because if I don't see somebody like me, they might think that it's not possible. So it's not only from the personal point of an investigator or the community. It's also how do we get it better and make it better for our next generation of you know Latinx and Hispanics? Absolutely. I could not agree more. I think our communities need to see themselves in the system in order to trust the system. And I also think that a huge barrier, a big problem is provider bias. And that bias may come from not truly being from the community and not really understanding the cultural nuances and the way that our communities see or define healthcare. And I think the more that we motivate our youth and into becoming the next generation of physicians, the next generation of researchers, that I think the more we're going to see that our communities will not only become involved in their own care, but also will trust the system a little bit more. 
Thank you, Laura. Representation truly matters. And LLS is on the front lines in helping to tackle this issue through our equity and access research programs to help ensure more equitable access to care for blood cancer patients and survivors. We also have our clinical trials support center that helps to bring individualized support to patients and caregivers who want to know more about clinical trials and know more about what their care options are. So thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having us. It was a delight to have you as engaged in this conversation. Hopefully this will lead to some more opportunities in the future to collaborate. Thank you, Christina, for having us. It's an honor to work with you and to collaborate with Dr. Barrientos and hopefully we'll continue working together to tackle these very important issues. Thank you again. Thank you all for listening to this informative episode. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education accredited activities, podcasts, and other healthcare professional resources, including a fact sheet on blood cancer survivorship treatment and ongoing patient care, visit LLS org ce For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. An information specialist like myself will provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about disease treatments financial, and other support resources. I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also provides resources for patients, survivors, and their families, including a series of podcasts, web programs in English and Spanish, booklets, financial, and psychosocial support at lls.org support. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.